Pacifica Radio. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon on KYAQ Central Coast and Queso in Cottage Grove, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, KFOI in Red Bluff and Redding, California, KKRN in Round Mountain, California, and Minneapolis-St. Paul's AM950, KTNF, and coast-to-coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, and Detour Talk, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but I'm in for him this week. I'm Angie Cuero of In Deep with Angie Cuero, which many of you hear on these same stations and streams. Tuesday morning was the usual scramble of trying to make sense of Donald Trump and his administration, this time with regard to Iran. It followed the established pattern. The New York Times reported that Trump told the president of France he planned to quit the Iran nuclear deal. Then, stop me if you heard this one, the White House denied that he'd said that. But then... We will be instituting the highest level of economic sanction. Any nation that helps Iran in its quest for nuclear weapons could also be strongly sanctioned by the United States. America will not be held hostage to nuclear blackmail. Okay, so he's ripping up the deal. But why? How does he justify this? First, it's critical to understand what information he's acting on, whether he's dealing in facts or knows if he's dealing in facts, what the deal entails and what it means to break it. And for context, I have two really good sources for you. One is a point-by-point explainer from Vox.com. Very good job there. And I'll run over a quick version of that with you. Second, and you'll hear this later in the show, Brad, of course, has been covering this long term. And we're going to get some context out of the archives from him. Let's go to the Vox rundown first. I'm really glad they do this because when an event like this suddenly peaks, we find out that maybe we haven't been paying enough attention. We're all busy. We all have lives. So raise your hand if you don't fully know what's going on. So they've actually acknowledged that with the headline. Thank you, Vox. Six questions about the Iran deal you were too embarrassed to ask. I actually want to start in the middle of this. Trump keeps asserting that Iran is a rule breaker that can't be trusted. And in that, as in so much, he capitalizes on the very human fear of, quote unquote, the other. So what is the agreement? And is Iran, in fact, cheating? So the Vox explanation of what the deal does, simply put, it says the deal stops Iran from getting a nuclear weapon for at least a decade. Iran did have centrifuges. The deal said they can't use more than about 5,000 of those 20,000, and they must be among the oldest and least useful ones. That was key to their plan to curb the Iran nuclear program, which understandably had people pretty freaked out. Since then, they have been having comprehensive inspections by the International Atomic Energy Agency, the AIEA. They also gave up, Iran gave up 97% of its enriched uranium. It has to keep its uranium at about 3.67% enrichment. 
uranium in nuclear bombs must reach 90% enrichment. So, ipso facto, this is their way of keeping Iran's hands off uranium nuclear bombs. So Iran would also destroy or export the core of its plutonium plant and replace it with a new core that can't produce weapons-grade plutonium. So, as Vox concludes, Iran rolls back its ability to get a nuclear weapon and more money flows into the country, give and take. There was nothing in the deal that points out that said Iran couldn't do other nefarious things like testing missiles or sponsoring terrorist groups like Hezbollah and Hamas or crack down on human rights at home. So it's not all-encompassing. Point me to a political agreement that accounts for everything. So... Vox goes into why Iran would want a nuclear weapon. You can look that up, look that up. But here's the deal, is whether, in fact, Iran has broken the pact. When we heard President Trump today, oh, I said President Trump out loud. When we heard Trump today, he was asserting what a boogeyman Iran is. And he cites old stories of bombings and violence, all of which are legit, some of which are very dated. And Vox breaks it down like so. Has Iran broken the nuclear deal? No, it says, but a little bit yes. According to the IAEA, the UN's nuclear inspectors, Iran continues to comply with every part of the nuclear deal. The IAEA director said, as of today, I can state Iran is implementing its nuclear-related commitments. That was on March 5th. So in effect, Vox concludes, Iran is no closer to having a nuclear weapon now than when it signed the accord back in 2015. But, there's a but, it has slightly violated some of the technical terms of the deal over the past few years. For example, in 2016, Iran twice exceeded the amount of heavy water in nuclear reactors it was allowed. But the country came clean about this to IAEA inspectors and promptly shut down that reactor. And Vox concludes, that's it. That's the gist of these violations that Trump is painting as a big, nasty threat to the U.S. As of now, Vox underlines, Iran can't acquire a nuclear weapon anytime soon. In other words, the deal for now is working. Even in Benjamin Netanyahu's PowerPoint, he didn't cite specific proof that Iran has significantly violated anything. So the onus would be on Trump to cite actions weighty enough to put America in harm's way. As one expert after another has said, this action will threaten peace much more than anything Iran has been doing. And in fact, will pull the rug out from under any influence peacekeepers have with Iran. So what does Trump have to offer that paints a feasible, specific threat from the current agreement? We will not allow American cities to be threatened with destruction. And we will not allow a regime that chants death to America to gain access to the most deadly weapons on Earth. Okay, that's convincing. Let me see. Iran is a big meanie. It's going to kill us all. Lucky for us, Donnie is here to stand big and tall and save us, and all his friends in Israel, too. And please don't look too hard at his assertions about Iran's amenability to inspections, because those won't stand up under scrutiny either. Disclaimer. The foregoing may have been a biased interpretation. And there are many more voices, more qualified and less snarky than mine, so let's get a sampling of reactions from observers who soak in this stuff every day. 
France's President Macron tweeted, quote, France, Germany, and the UK regret the U.S. decision to leave the JCPOA, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. The nuclear nonproliferation regime is at stake. Now, this guy has put up with a lot of grief trying to work with Trump. Maybe he's getting tired of that. Some great uh, commentary on NPR, a joint production with WBUR in Boston. Mara Liason was there. She was very blunt. You know, my reaction to this was to quote the president. We'll see what happens. He usually says that when he's not quite sure what is going to happen. Russia and China, who are parties to this deal, might see this as a great opportunity to isolate America and to to separate America from its European allies, who don't seem that enthusiastic. Well, yippee, that's encouraging. Liason also raised this issue. What if other countries decide not to play along? He had a veiled threat, of course, if Iran continues its nuclear aspirations, it'll have bigger problems than ever before. Was he threatening to go to war with Iran? I don't know. He also said that this highest level of economic sanctions that he's going to reimpose could also be put on any nation uh, that helps Iran, he said, could also be sanctioned. Okay, given all that, what's the bottom line and where are we? Lots of questions remain, including what happens next. The Guardian UK points out the JCPOA is a subtle document. It allows for all kinds of what they say is fudge if Trump's advisors choose to take that course. The guidance accompanying the original agreement was 42 pages long. And back to quoting here, the specific decision Trump is required to take by May 12th is whether to renew a waiver on a set of sanctions first implemented in January 2012. Removing the waiver will not immediately lead to the imposition of sanctions. It would mean companies, including banks, have to show over the next 180 days that they are reducing their trade in Iranian oil by significant amounts. Now, here's the key bit of that article. If the president takes step-by-step removal of sanctions as waiver deadlines fall, EU diplomats have up to six months to negotiate with Iran with the proviso that Tehran chooses not to decide a U.S. refusal to renew the waiver represents a withdrawal from the JCPOA and justifies the renewal of its nuclear program. That's the big one. They also quote Jarrett Blanc. He's a former Obama administration lead on Iran who said... The JCPOA does not have any formal provisions or procedures for withdrawal. It isn't a treaty. It's a political agreement. So back to the quote, a participant in the deal may simply cease complying with its obligations. The conclusion of the article, even if Trump interpreted the lifting of the waiver as U.S. withdrawal, the EU could still try to keep the deal going on a life support machine. Okay, so for the last word on all this before we move on, let's go back to that post-press conference coverage from NPR and WBUR. Among their commentators, Aaron David Miller, Middle East expert with the Wilson Center, in both word and tone, I suspect he speaks for many Americans. I don't think there is an endgame, because in large part, for there to be an endgame, there would have to be a strategy. There is no plan B. And I think we, we need to start adjusting ourselves to the idiosyncrasies, the dangers Uh, and the risks of a post-JCPOA world. Okay, let's do take a break. If all this has left your head swirling, as promised, Brad has a solid explainer in the archive to help you understand, and we're going to hear some excerpts from that. And later in the show, it's part two 
of the conversation we started yesterday, discussions of being black and female in America. I'm Angie Corver. This is the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. But is it in your conscience that you're Broadcast. Brad and Desi have their feet up for this week. I hope they're on vacation anyway. I'm Angie Carver in the host chair. You might have noticed a big difference between me and Brad. Brad is a polymath. There's just about nothing that he doesn't know at least something about, and he can discuss very intelligently anything, including international issues. Now, me, I am more laser-focused on domestic issues, civil liberties, racism, feminism, U.S. fiscal equality, and how all of that plays out in pop culture. Now, I have a respectable knowledge of international issues, including Iran, and the backdrop of this week's developments. And I hope that I have helped you understand that. But when something this big comes down the pike, something with such potential long-lasting repercussions, I want to know more. I want deeper context, wider analysis. And so I went searching for something you and I can listen to together. Not surprisingly, I found some of the best context right here in Bradland. It is really valuable to listen back to this in-depth conversation Brad had in October. He was talking with Dr. Trita Parsi. Dr. Parsi is an expert in U.S.-Iran relations. In fact, he is the founder and president of the National Iranian American Council. He's the author of, among other books, Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Now, that title right there gives you a hint of what he must be feeling today. Dr. Parsi and Brad spoke in October uh, as uh, the president of the National Iranian American Council, mm-hmm. uh, my organization was called in by the Obama administration on numerous occasions, frankly, throughout these negotiations to advise, and also later on when it came to the fight in Congress, uh, in which it was an effort to try to stop the deal. We played a, a pretty important role in securing congressional support for this deal in order to make sure that it wouldn't get killed. And, and this gave me a front seat... Um, uh, privilege of being able to see what was going on, what the calculations was, because throughout all of this, I also had great access to the Iranian side with numerous interviews with the Iranian foreign minister, who was their lead negotiator. And after the uh, after the agreement was struck, Congress tried to seemingly, uh, for oversight purposes, uh, demand that the president certify that Iran is in compliance uh, every three months, if I understand it. And uh, and that was, of course, when uh, President Obama was in the White House. And that if the president finds them not in compliance, Congress can then vote to leave the agreement by reimposing the previous sanctions regime against Iran, as I understand it. First, do I understand essentially how that is supposed to work? Yes, that is correct. If I could add some detail. Yeah. The president can decertify 
But not only if he believes that Iran is in violation of the deal, which in this case it is not, mm -hmm. uh, Iran is living up to the deal, but he could also be certified simply because he doesn't want to certify or because he can say, look, uh, I don't believe it's in the U.S.'s interest any mm -hmm. longer to continue to waive sanctions. And, and that is what is been signaled he will do. He will not be able to go and make the case that the Iranians are in violation of the deal because his own Secretary of Defense says that they're in compliance. Right. The Secretary of State says they're in compliance. The head of the chairman of the uh, Joint um, Chief of Staff says that they're in compliance. So does the U.S. intelligence community, and so does the IEA. So the only thing he can say is that, well, I don't think it's in the U.S.'s interest to continue to waive sanctions, and then they'll kick it off to Congress. And then the question is what Congress will do. And so that is, so there is legitimate legal grounds, at least within what uh, Congress uh, requires the president to do. Uh, there's legitimate legal grounds for him to decertify the agreement just because he feels like it. There doesn't need to be any actual uh, breach of the agreement in order for him to decertify? There does not. Uh, and... Uh he can simply say that in the totality of U.S.-Iran relations, I don't believe that it's any longer in the interest of the United States to continue to waive sanctions. He'll send it to Congress. Congress will then have to make a decision whether to reimpose sanctions or not. And if they do, then the U.S. is in clear violation of the deal. Uh, and that will very likely bring about a do-or-die moment for the, uh, the nuclear deal. And I have seen, I want to talk about that do-or-die moment, but I've seen the, that, uh, the argument in any event that the U.S. themselves have already broken the deal uh, with the imposition of new sanctions recently signed by the president uh, just a few weeks ago. Is that true, or in any event, is that how uh, Iran sees it? I don't personally believe that the imposition of the, pre the sanctions recently have been a violation of the deal. Mm -hmm. However, I think it is a much stronger argument to say that by going to the G20 and discouraging them from trading with Iran, Trump is in a clear violation of Article 29 of the agreement, which says that no country should stand in the way of what is now legitimate trade between Iran and the outside world. You can't lift sanctions as an incentive for the deal and then go and, and encourage countries not to trade with Iran. Mm. That's what this article essentially said. Uh -huh. And that's exactly what Trump went and did uh, at the G20 meeting. He went there and he lobbied countries not to trade with Iran. So they themselves, Iran themselves at this point, would have the right to, to pull out of the deal and, and claim that the, because, it, because the U.S. Uh, uh, broke the agreement. Uh, and there are voices in Iran who's made that case, but fortunately thus far the Iranians have um, refrained from further escalating this. They have complained about the U.S. being in violation, but they haven't done anything beyond that. As best as you can explain it, and I, and I know that it might not be easy, but what is, what is the other side here? What's the president's side of this, correctly or incorrectly? What is his actual complaint uh, with this seven-party treaty, uh, what would he have liked to have seen? I mean, he said many times it was the worst deal ever struck. It's an embarrassment to the U.S. What is his actual complaint, Dr. Parsi? Uh, it really is not clear what the actual complaint is, because when the Iranians are living up to the deal, what is it really that he's complaining about? If he's complaining that, you know, the Iranians are keeping X amount of centrifuges, etc., uh, well, he's in clear minority. Everyone else signed on to this deal. The U.S. was the lead negotiating force behind this, and it signed it. 
more than anything else, to be completely frank, this seems to be in line with almost everything else Trump has done since he took office, which is he just simply opposes anything that has Obama's signature on it, whether it's the Affordable Care Act, whether it is uh, the Iran deal. And there seems to be an obsession on his end to undo it for that simple reason, because in his own administration, his Secretary of State tells him, don't decertify. His Secretary of Defense tells him, don't decertify. His Chairman of the Chief Joint of Staff says, don't decertify. So what is it that... Trump, with his brilliant real estate mind, manages to see as a flaw with this deal that no one else seems to be able to identify. Well, that kind of uh, that, that was sort of my 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 next question. Based on that, is if there is an actual diplomatic path, whatever it is. I mean, I've heard him complain that oh, after the the deal expires, they'll be able to continue enriching uh, uranium again. Uh, that the deal itself doesn't uh, doesn't even speak to Iran's other military programs like its ballistic missile program and so forth. So my question was going to be, is there an actual diplomatic path with Iran to answer to these complaints? But it sounds like if there's not really legitimate complaints, there's not really a diplomatic path to work them out with uh, with with the country. Am, am I right about well, that? Well, here, here's the thing. This is a negotiation. So if you want to get more, you have to give more. The United States could potentially have gotten more in terms of restricting the program a little bit more and, you know, a little bit longer duration. Mm -hmm. But in return, it would have been forced to give much more, probably on the sanctions front. And the more sanctions it was offering the Iranians, the stronger the opposition to the deal would become in Congress. Mm -hmm. So bottom line is, if you want to get a better deal, yeah, offer a better deal. Provide something else to the Iranians that would get them to agree to make further restrictions. But in order for Trump to have any chance of being able to negotiate addendums to the deal or additional deals, he needs to first prove himself trustworthy by adhering and, and um, living up to the obligations of the current deal. He's not doing that. Mm. There's no reason for anyone in the international community to really trust him because he's reneged on the Paris Agreement. He is pushing NATO around. He's reneged on this agreement. Why would you negotiate with Trump? What is it that gives you the confidence that he has the capacity of upholding his promises? That's the problem here. One could make the argument that there could be better deals that could be gotten. But in order to get those deals, you need to have the credibility of being a good and fair and trustworthy negotiator. Trump does not have that reputation anywhere. And that uh, that all sort of parallels my conversation yesterday uh, on on this show with John Nichols, who basically uh, of the nation, who basically said, well, you know, when you have these sort of negotiations, being tough, uh, threatening military options. We were talking about North Korea mostly at the time, but that goes along, that goes hands in, hand in hand with diplomatic options. You're trying to force them to the table. He doesn't seem to have a plan, really, to get to the table with Iran, um, no matter how much of a fit he throws here. There, there doesn't seem to be a diplomatic path to uh, overcome these issues peacefully. Am I right in that observation? There is a path. He's just doing everything he can to make sure that that path <laughs> more or less is eliminated. Okay. I mean, Obama managed to create that path by 
looking at the Iranians, recognizing he needed to be careful with the language that he used. He needed to be tough, but at the same time make clear that he's willing to compromise, that he's willing to offer something. What Trump is doing is ensuring that no one really finds any value in any negotiation. And if part of his assumption appears to be that he believes that the United States has a much stronger hand than it does, the Obama administration negotiated really, really hard, but they recognized they had to give compromises. They had to accept that Iran is going to continue to enrich uranium. They had to accept that at the end of uh, the 15-year period of this deal, the Iranians are going to have uh, a nuclear program that is no different from any other non-proliferation uh, treaty party because there was no other option. The United States simply is not in the position of power to impose on the Iranians a stricter, stricter variation. The United States could get a better deal in that sense if it was willing to offer more. But offering carrots was also very costly politically, mm -hmm. and that's part of the reason why more wasn't offered. Dr. Tritaparsi, even before Trump officially decertifies the nuclear agreement with Iran, as he was reported to be doing, what, what is the effect of his rhetoric alone on these matters? How is uh, this sort of thing, whether it's, you know, uh, threats that uh, Iran is not in compliance or has claimed that this is the calm before the storm, how is that sort of thing heard in Iran? Well, I think the Iranians perceive this as Trump being incapable of, frankly, handling these issues, that he thinks that he can simply bully his way uh, into a better situation. And I think it reveals a tremendous amount of naivete on, on Trump's behalf, um, because that's not the way international relations really work. I mean, it may be a tremendously clever strategy if you're a real estate developer in Manhattan. You may have to play these games, and perhaps you can bully your subcontractors into giving you a better price. But the countries in the U.N. Security Council, France, Germany, England, Russia, China, they're not subcontractors of the United States, nor is Iran. This is not a strategy that has any chance of success on the international stage. The only question is, how much damage will it incur on the United States before Trump stops doing what he's doing right now? I'm Angie Cuero. You're listening to the broadcast, and we're getting critical context here for the Trump-Iran press conference this week and what might be coming down the pike in its wake. This is a conversation Brad had with the founder and president of the National Iranian American Council, Dr. Trita Parsi. Let's go back for more of that. Uh, you, you write in the New York Review of Books that many in the U.S. are not appreciating just how much the accord has, in fact, bolstered the moderates in Tehran. Has that rising moderate movement yet been damaged uh, by just the, the, the rhetoric of, the, uh, of, of this president or even by the Republicans in Congress who have long been calling to, to scrap this particular deal? Uh, it, it has been heard. You can see that in the polls right now. There's a lot of um, disappointment amongst uh, the public that the deal has not delivered as much as they hoped for as a result of Trump scaring away investors. Uh, but I don't think we've seen even the beginning of the damage. That we will see after decertification. Um, and at that point, um, uh, the big scary thing that could happen is that if this then leads to a scenario in which 
the reformists in Iran start losing political ground, start losing elections, because then we'll potentially be back in an Ahmadinejad type of a situation. And I don't know why anyone would like to return back to that type of a scenario. How do you see this uh, playing out? If, as as reported, he plans to say uh, to, to not certify this, to then send it to Congress, uh, to have them decide how this moves forward. What is your sense in, in Congress, how they will react? Will they, in fact, uh, also vote to decertify this agreement? And if so, then what? <laughs> so the first question is that um, there is actually resistance in Congress against reimposing, snapping back to sanctions, which is quite unusual. Congress otherwise loves to impose sanctions on mm-hmm. Iran. But it's a very easy thing to do because it has Congress is sufficiently removed from the consequences of its actions, so it's a pretty cost-free thing to do. This time around, that's not the case. If they snap back sanctions, Congress will have killed the deal. And as a result, it's a consequential vote on par with the vote to authorize George Bush to use military force against Iraq in 2002. And a lot of members of Congress deeply regret that vote. And some of them have paid a very political high price for that vote. So you're starting to see a lot of members of Congress starting to have second thoughts. They don't want Trump to push this issue onto them um, uh, because they don't want to own the disaster that will follow if they Mm. snap back sanctions. So there's a chance that Congress actually will not snap back sanctions, at least not entirely. They may go for a third option, but that option may also, unfortunately, be sufficient to kill the deal. Uh, it may just not kill it as quickly or as directly. What would, what would that so, third... So, yeah, so for many in Congress, it's not about whether you save the deal or not. You just don't want to be responsible for what happens. So if you can kill the deal but avoid responsibility for killing the deal. Unfortunately, a lot of members of Congress uh, would opt for that option. Uh, yeah, like, like they uh, spent years saying, well, we need to kill Obamacare, and then when they had the ability to actually do it, oh, maybe we don't want to do it after all. Maybe exactly. we're not so I mean, sure. It's been so costly for them to be so disconnected from the consequences of their rhetoric, the consequences of their vote. This time around, that's not the case. They will own this. And that has created a situation in which almost all Democrats in the Senate are going to oppose any reimposition of sanctions or any the strict reimposition of sanctions. Mm-hmm. And there may also be a decent chance that several Republicans will jump ship. I mean, Trump has already declared war on several Republicans in the Senate, including Senator Corker, with his insulting tweets. So uh, I don't think there is much sense of a party loyalty any longer. Uh, we've already seen that several senators, senior senators, broke with uh, uh, with Trump on um, uh, on health care and mm-hmm. on other issues as well. So you may end up having a situation in which a strict snapping back of sanctions actually will not pass Congress. Then the question is, will they do something else or will they just not do anything? Mm-hmm. Then if they don't do anything, then we have a scenario in which, okay, Trump decertified but there was no sanctions reimposed. So technically, the U.S. is not in violation of the deal, and it's not necessarily going to kill the deal. But it will still create a significant amount of uncertainty. What will happen in January when he's supposed to certify again? Hmm. Will he just skip certifying because he's just decertified once and simply won't go back to it? What will international business think? Will they go into the Iranian market, or will they believe that, you know, this is just too risky? If international business ends up not going into the Iranian market and the Iranians won't get the financial benefit, the economic benefit of being in compliance, mm-hmm. 
then political dynamics in Iran are going to more or less inevitably lead to a scenario in which the Iranians will stop being in compliance. And that's not good. Uh, that's not good <laughs> at all. Because that, so it opens up so many different pathways yeah. for the deal to fall apart. What we need to see is not Trump certifying or decertifying with Congress not pulling the trigger. We need to see the United States live up to its promises, affirmatively commit itself to this deal, which is working, that is delivering, and stop messing around with it, because it's not gaining anything. It's only creating more uncertainty, which then leads to more instability, and then potentially a collapse of the deal that can bring the United States back onto a path towards war with Iran. Dr. Trita Parsi with Brad Friedman. You can find the whole interview online at bradblog.com. Coming up, part two in a series of interviews about growing up black woman in America with renowned author and academic Julie Lithcott-Hames. I'm Angie Cuero. This is the Bradcast. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Cora. This past weekend, Childish Gambino, a.k.a. Donald Glover, released the stunning video for his new track, This Is America, commentary on violence, entertainment media, and the reality of being a black American man. Yesterday, along that line, I brought you insight from a young black woman on her experience in America, Morgan Jerkins, discussing her book, This Will Be My Undoing. And as promised, here's a second layer on that. Author and academic Julie Lithcott-Hames served as a dean at Stanford University. She penned the best-selling warning on helicopter parenting, how to raise an adult. That's a good read even if you don't have a kid, I can attest. Her latest book, Real American, is much more personal. It is a memoir, how that image of thriving success that we've seen of her left out the part where as a child of a white mom and a black dad, raised almost exclusively among white people, she suffered an ongoing crisis of identity and acceptance. Among other differences between her life story and Morgan Jerkins, she's from a different generation. And American culture when she was a child was a very different place. Here's part of our conversation recorded for my show, In Deep with Angie Cuero. You would think if anybody was equipped to raise a biracial child well, it would be your parents. They were accomplished and smart. I mean, they got married when they got married overseas, Yeah. when there are any number of states where they couldn't have gotten married in the U.S. I mean, they knew what it was like to break the mold. What was the disconnect between their level of awareness and experience and how they kind of messed it up with you? Yeah. For people who don't know, my dad, um, who's 
been gone now for over 20 years, was an African-American physician, helped eradicate smallpox in West Africa um, as a U.S. diplomat doing that work. My mother was a white British, is a white British school teacher, now American. Um, they married in 66 in Ghana, where they met. They had me in Lagos, Nigeria in 67. They moved to the States in 69, and my mother was naturalized before that. Yeah, they knew a lot. They knew they were breaking the rules, many rules. They knew that there was controversy around their loving one another. They decided to love and marry and have a child anyway. Um, but I don't think they had any idea what it would mean to actually raise a biracial child in the early 1970s in America. Nobody knew because we as a mixed race population were relatively new conceptually, uh, because there were such fierce laws against miscegenation, that ugly term for interracial marriage, most folks weren't doing it. And so I am that early generation of the children of Loving versus Virginia, the children um, whose parents' marriage was newly legalized in America. Um, growing up in New York, outside of Manhattan, um, Madison, Wisconsin, Northern Virginia, and then Middleton, Wisconsin, there weren't many kids who looked like me. I have very light brown skin. I have this biracial, curly, coiled hair. I didn't look black and I didn't look white and nobody knew what I was and they made sure I knew, mm -hmm. you know, that I was an oddity or a freak of nature or unclassifiable or problematic. Mm -hmm. And um, my parents adopted the wisdom of the day, which is the prevailing wisdom today, which is when you have a mixed kid, we didn't even have the term biracial and multiracial then. Those terms came about in the late 80s. You know, it was, well, she's not white. You know, you better raise her to be black and proud because she will be treated as a black kid and she'd better claim and love that identity and feel safe and secure in it. So my parents' strategy was when I came home with those questions from my classmates, what are you? You know, what? And it wasn't a nice, it wasn't like, I don't know how you asked that question nicely, but it didn't sound like it was like, what are you? Yeah. Right. Or where are you from? Right. Trying to discern my origins. My parents said very vociferously, you're black. We're a black family. And they they were great with the messaging, mm -hmm. but they made choices, particularly the choice to raise me in predominantly at times entirely white towns, except for us. They made choices to raise me around white folks which meant there was no cultural depth or context or richness to the claim that we were a black family. Mm -hmm. So it was on me to pay a lot of attention to my black daddy. What is daddy doing? If I'm black and he's black, I need to be like him. And he was a fantastic role model, but he was a you know, very successful internationally traveling physician. He was hardly ever home. My mm -hmm. white mother, I say, was the blackest white lady I knew. She was trying to bring blackness into our life with images on the wall and books. But I didn't have black peers. I didn't have black teachers. I didn't have black mentors or role models. And so I literally looked to the television screen for evidence about how to be the right kind of black person versus the stereotypical black person who was being made fun of or who was portrayed as a criminal or, you know, the various negative stereotypes are. So, yeah. so I didn't know. So their big mistake was, uh, I think in overlooking the importance of my psychocultural development. Mm -hmm. I think my daddy, who grew up in Jim Crow, Oklahoma, born in 1918, 
you know, and yet became a physician, the son of a black physician raised in the segregated South. Daddy just wanted to make it, make it, make it and didn't want anybody to stand in his way. And so when my parents bought property, we moved a lot. My mother would be the one to visit with the real estate agent. My mother would go on the tours. That's the way redlining did not happen. My father would show up with the big aha at the closing, you know, like <laughs> what? We've just sold this house to a black man. Yes. And my father was thrilled to see the looks on people's faces. I mean, that was his thing. Like I will be unimpeded. And I think he wanted me, his daughter to be unimpeded, which in his mind meant to make it in white places. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot I got out of that. However, because there were no people of color around, no black people, particularly what I didn't have was a sense of comfort in my own skin or comfort, you know, among people who had were living this life experience. I was, mm -hmm. you know, black people. And, um, and that was their big, big failing. And it took me decades to heal from that damage. Your dad passed away before you really got to having these deep open Absolutely. conversations. Absolutely, I was twenty-seven. Yeah, but your mom—I gotta say—periodically, <laughs> I felt bad for your mom, and she's been in she's been in audiences when you've been there, telling about everything she's done wrong. I guess I wonder in those subsequent conversations you have had with her about her choice to say, "We are a black family. You are black. How is she white, and you are black?" Unless she's falling into that, you know, one drop rule. If you have any blackness at all, you're black. Well, Angie, that one drop rule is part of the fabric of America. So you could say she's falling into that trap, but that's that's some, America has dictated that. That's life. America has said uh, that whiteness is pure and races of color, the other races, are a stain on whiteness. And so to this day, you know, we know that somebody, you know, if you present as white, you're white. If you present as slightly not white, you're not white. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it is it is it is not. Um, it is a reality that um, uh, a child of, of mixed parents in this country, uh, at least until very recently, maybe things are changing as more and more mixed kids are born, is regarded as being the race of the parent of color. Mm -hmm. Now, it gets more complicated if you're half black and half Latino, like, which one are you? You know, and there's a lot of different questions then that, that come up when the person is of uh, mixed ancestry where both are of color. But when one is white and the other is of color, the kid is regarded as unless they pass, unless their skin color is so light and their features so white that they can pass, in which case they they pass as white and have to spend their lives denying that they have any ancestry of color, which is a separate kind of pain. Um, you shouldn't feel badly for my mother. I mean, you can, but she's fine. She's an amazing woman. She's 79 years old. We all live together in Palo Alto. My mother has never said to me, it didn't happen that way. She didn't say to me, why'd you write about it? She didn't say, I wish you hadn't or anything like that. Um, what she has said is, I am so happy for you that you have come to the truth of who you are and that you're talking about it. So she shows up just, you know, the other day I was at the League of Women Voters here in Palo Alto. My mother's uh, hugely involved with that organization. And there she was in the audience. And I watched her re-experience the emotion she does. Just as you said at the front of the show, I experience the, the emotion in the retelling. Mm -hmm. My mother does too. But it's not an anguished, whoa, I wish Julie wasn't saying that. It's, look at my daughter. She is telling her truth. And um, she experiences, I think, actual joy around that. Mm -hmm. um, she wanted to raise a black daughter who would be comfortable in her skin with her hair, and she has. It just took a whole lot longer for me to get there than she had hoped. 
What was your experience like when you started to see other black people, when they did become part of your circle? I mean, did you feel an instant identification? I am at home now. What did you experience from them? Yeah. So that first opportunity came when I came to college here, right down the street at Stanford University, uh, 1985. Came from far away Wisconsin, uh, all white high school. Now I'm at Stanford, which at the time was about 6% black, maybe 7 or 8%, um, a critical mass of, of black folk. Um, and I hoped that this would finally be my opportunity to be in community with people who would accept me for who I was. And what I found was, again, 1985, certainly a different time than now, a lot of black folks were um, skeptical of mixed race kids. Uh, you know, a mixed race kid like me, raised in all white towns, with the kind of speech I have, which is often referred to as white speech, my manner of speaking. You know, there's a term we use in the black community about folks like me, Oreo right? Black on the outside, white on the inside. And, um, and I first heard that term here mm -hmm. at Stanford as an undergraduate. So I had hoped to find belonging, but felt rejected, actually. Um, I can now appreciate it wasn't anywhere near that simple. As I made my way toward Black community gatherings mm -hmm. as an undergraduate um, and felt rejected, um, what I will tell you I felt then was, it looks like everybody knows each other. Everybody's familiar and friendly. There's a warmth. There's a language. There's, you know, sort of this common manner and way of being that I felt excluded from. I felt ill-equipped to participate in. Uh, it was literally as if everybody knew each other, which wasn't the case. But there seemed to be this familiarity that I was excluded from. Um, I felt as if they could see my white mother standing with me. I felt as if branded on my forehead was I grew up in all white towns. What I can say now at 50 years of age is I was approaching those gatherings with a look of trepidation and fear on my face. Like, I might not belong here. I think I want to belong here. You know, am I black enough? Am I like you? Are you going to like me? You know, I was wearing a mask of fear mm -hmm. and... Um, and I'm sure as I approached people, I just sort of looked weird and um, and was trying too hard, you know, to make it or to fit in. And all I knew was the stereotypes of what black people were. Well, and all you ever knew was being outside looking in, too. I mean, you carry that with you. Yeah. So I think what I learned from those early encounters was I don't actually belong anywhere. I sure as heck, I have to say heck because I'm on the radio, right? <laughs> we got to I sure button. as heck <laughs> am not white. And now maybe I'm not black. What am I? Do I exist if there's mm -hmm. no community of people to embrace me, to, to call me in, to bring me home, to put their arms around me, you know, where I can really feel a sense of love as opposed to a need to explain or defend or be somebody different than I am. Mm -hmm. So I felt rejected by the black community as I had already felt rejected by the white community. Um, but what I'm trying to convey is a lot of that rejection was within myself already. So I was presenting to the black community as, you know, I'm not sure I belong here. And when I finally did the psychological work to unpack all of the self-loathing, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get to, mm -hmm. what I discovered was the black community was waiting for me. In fact, some people have literally said to me, we were waiting for you. We were here all along. I couldn't see them. I couldn't feel the embrace until I was able to see myself and embrace myself 
as a woman of color, as a black woman. Mm -hmm. And this sounds like a whole lot of psychological woo-woo mumbo-jumbo. But all I can tell you is I have never known anything more truly than what I just said to you. Mm -hmm. it, doesn't, it doesn't sound that way to me. Just, oh, good. Just FYI. Okay, good. Because you're anti-coy, bro. <laughs> you understand humans. There was a moment at Stanford University where you raised your hand for the first time to answer a question, and you got acknowledgement and affirmation from a professor. And you said that you were afraid of being wrong and being black. Being black and wrong. Being black and wrong. And I know that there are things that we say, I was afraid of blah, 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 and it's in retrospect you've learned that that was what you were afraid of. You knew that at the moment. Heck yeah. 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 Well, when you're a member of a marginalized group, you're black, you're a person of color, you're queer. There are all kinds of ways in which we marginalize people, right? Religion, gender fluidity. Um, when you do something wrong, your group is deemed to have been wrong. You know, when there's a mass shooting and it's a black person, every black person cringes and thinks, oh, God, now they think all of us do that. That doesn't happen to white folks. Mm -mm. Most of the mass shootings are committed by white folks. And white people don't walk around feeling, like, oh, no, now they think we're all mass shooters. People of color are treated as a monolithic group. So certainly when we fail, you know, we are the further evidence that our group cannot succeed. When we succeed, we tend to be regarded as that one off, you know, except when they want to say racism's behind us. They say, look at Barack Obama, look at Oprah Winfrey. There's no more racism because these people are successful. So we're constantly in this, you know, we're, we're all in it together and um, as black people. And so I knew that... Um, to speak up and be wrong at a Stanford class would bring shame upon me. Like maybe I didn't get in for the quote unquote right reasons. Maybe I was only admitted, you know, buying into that rhetoric on the political right of, you know, when you admit people of color, when you take an interest in their background and so on, like they're not qualified, they can't do the work. You know, I did not want to be the evidence that that might be true about myself by being wrong. So I always had to be right. But I also knew that if I said something wrong, that I was harming all the other black people in my class, you mm -hmm. know, in my grade, in my school, um, because um, we, we all sort of have to, when we go to bat, we go to bat for each other. You did have an identity you were secure in, and that was that you were smart. It, yes, my identity was very much built around my academic achievement. Mm -hmm. And yet at so many turns, at fifth grade, when I was not attested for gifted and talented, but my friends were, and my mother had to fight, you know, and going to a high school where a, my chemistry teacher said, the reason why there's more infant mortality in black populations is because black people don't love their children as much as white people. Like this was, this is a fill in the blank S word, you know, that I can't stand the radio. This is the stuff I had to deal with. And so I was constantly trying to, to use my smarts to locate myself in places of accomplishment in white spaces and be above their reproach. Mm -hmm. But yeah, being smart isn't it's a piece of your sense of self or your identity, but it is not an identity. Right. You know, identity is, do I know who I am? Mm -hmm. Am I okay with who I am? You know, can I walk down the street? Can I, can I be content in my body and my being and my mind, regardless of what other people think of me? Mm -hmm. You did work towards self-love. So give us a little glimpse of what that road was, road was like from self-loathing to self-love. Step one. Step one. 
Um, well, I don't know that there's a step one because there's like 99 steps and I can't tell you what was first. Um, but I can tell you a few of the steps I remember. Um, when Hurricane Katrina happened in 2005, and I'm a dean at Stanford, and we're working on how can we accept, you know, get kids from who are supposed to be at Tulane, you know, how can we get them to Stanford because we start later and their school's underwater. And, you know, so I have a very, you know, job-related interest in that. I have a, a concern, as any human does, about what's happening in New Orleans. And I'm watching on television as black people are on their roofs where they have scrawled onto signs help us. And they have written with whatever they could hear the emotion in my voice. Why is the emotion in my voice? Because I'm a human with a heart and I care deeply about what happens to humans. So I'm watching on TV. I mean, this is now 13 years later and I feel the emotion. You see the sign spelled out with whatever they can make a sign out of. And the black woman in me felt that could be me. There, but for the grace of God, go I. I was born to a middle-class family. I live in Northern California. I could have been in the Ninth Ward. I'm not, but I care deeply about what's happening to these folks, systemically disregarded by their local, state, and federal government. Okay, that was a turning point for me. Okay, that was when my interest in, in what is happening to black people um, was not something I studied in political science or American history. It was, I was feeling it in my body. It was connecting me to black people, even though I had very little in common with the black people in the Ninth Ward of New Orleans. I felt it that day, watching that horrific flyby, listening to former First Lady Barbara Bush say when they're all packed into the Houston Astrodome for weeks, oh, this is working very well for them. Most of them were underprivileged anyway. You know, I mean, that was just so, 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 so taking the political, making it personal was a beginning of my shift toward, wait a minute, mm -hmm. you know, wait a minute. I cannot sit here and abide. This is happening to people like me, you know. That was one important piece. Another important piece was, and I believe it was the same year, 2005 was a, was a good year and a bad year for me uh, simultaneously for per this personal transformation from loathing to love. There was a gathering of black faculty on the Stanford campus, uh, not faculty, staff, black faculty and staff around the holidays. So this would have been, we'd go from August, we'd go to now December. It's just a holiday gathering. It's an affinity group on campus. I want to go. I've got black colleagues and friends. And it's a Wednesday afternoon, and I've got my kids on Wednesday afternoons. I have a busy full-time job, but a flexible schedule. Thank you, Stanford. Uh, Wednesday afternoons, I'm mom, I'm home, I'm with my little ones. I come back in at dinner time and work late into the night every single Wednesday. If I'm going to go to this party, which is at about 4 p.m. on a Wednesday, I'm going to have to bring my babies. Well... One of them's four, one of them's six. My six-year-old son resembles me, darker skin than me, unambiguously of color, unambiguously black. My daughter is lighter than me, resembles her white Jewish daddy, probably passing for white in many people's eyes. And I realize as I'm, a, and I'm bringing my kids to this event, I realize, oh no, oh no, oh no, what are my black colleagues going to think of my very light little girl? And I felt a bit of shame and I realized, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't possibly be that mother to this child. You know, if I'm worried that what my black colleagues are going to think about me because I have not been black enough to pass on blacker genes to both children, that that is about as effed up as a person can be. And for the sake of this child, I need to get my stuff together. 
And um, I realized I began writing for the first time, not for work or for school. I began writing to work out the knots of shame in my psyche. And as I did that work the day after this holiday event, um, this work that would, would begin then, but last for years, um, I, I quickly came to realize after that event, I wasn't ashamed of my beautiful girl. I was ashamed to be me. And, um, I wanted for the sake of my kids and myself to work that stuff out so that whatever pains and loathings and so on of race and racism that were lurking inside me would, would come out so that, um, um, I could be healthy and I could offer my children a healthy mother. Julie Lithgott-Hames, her memoir is Real American, and our whole conversation is online at indeepradio.com slash podcasts. And that is a wrap for today's broadcast. Next time around, we're going to be looking at election results and the latest farm bill coming out of the House, its implications for parents and children and their ability to, oh, you know, eat and more of the political scene coming here up on the broadcast. I'm Angie Quero. Now more than ever, good luck, world. <laughs>